We're studying in Genesis in a series entitled Gleanings from the Book of Genesis. If you're with us this morning without a Bible, just wave to one of these guys coming up the aisle right now. We want everyone to hear the Word of God, but we want you to see it with your eyes as well and uh, double gates in terms of uh, impacting our lives. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Um, as you find your place there in Genesis, uh, that was the easy book to find, uh, chapter 25. I would like you to hold your place there and then uh, go also to Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, with that, while you're finding your way, on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we didn't quite get all the way through chapter 9 last week. And uh, the, the, everyone was listening so slow that we couldn't get through the chapter. And uh, so we'll finish up that great prophecy in, Gen in Daniel chapter 9 this evening. And then we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper as a part of our evening service as well. Uh, and uh, if you haven't partaken of the Lord's Supper in a while, uh, we'll be doing that this evening and a great opportunity to do that. Uh, Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. And this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, uh, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, uh, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Uh, ooh. Uh, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be, uh, be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so when the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, and so they called his name Esau. And afterward his brother came out, and his hand took hold of uh, Esau's heel, and so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And so the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. And therefore his name was also called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? And then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils and then he ate, drank, arose, and went his way, and thus Esau despised his birthright. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse uh, 12. Therefore strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. 
Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see God, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. And then here it is. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Let's pray together. Father, we sing that chorus to you about being happy to be in the truth. And we are both happy and thankful to be in the truth of your word, to live, Lord, in the light of your commandments, your wisdom, your instruction the beauty of all of it. And Lord, we're thankful for every bit of your truth and all that it is intended to accomplish within our lives. And we pray that concerning the truth that we will look at today, that you will bless it into our lives, into our relationship with you, Lord, into uh, our spirit, that it might have its needed place in our lives and the remainder of our pilgrimage. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Coming now to Genesis chapter 25, uh, immediately behind us uh, in the book is not only the events of Mount Moriah in uh, chapter 22 as we studied last week, but Also, uh, the chapters that were jumping contain the death of Sarah, uh, also a bride being uh, bought for uh, Isaac, the death and burial of Abraham uh, in chapters 23 and 24. And this morning, uh, our focus is on Isaac, the son of Abraham, uh, his wife, Rebekah, and most specifically upon their two sons by the name of Jacob and Esau. Uh, the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jacob and Esau are described for us there in verses 19 uh, through 26. We're told in verse 20 that Isaac was 40 years old when he uh, married Rebekah, and uh, Isaac prayed uh, because Rebekah was barren, unable to bear children, prayed to the Lord that his wife might conceive. And so they've been, as, as you look at the ages that are given in the passage, they've now been married for 20 years and diligently desiring children, endeavoring to have children, and uh, not successful. And God answered uh, Isaac's prayer, verse 22 and 23, And uh, Rebecca became not only pregnant, but she became pregnant with twins. And Rebecca's prayer, it's almost humorous in verses 22 and 23, uh, to the Lord and all of this. Remember, she'd never been pregnant before. And, uh, And the activity in her womb was so great that she... Uh, thinking, I've never been pregnant, is this normal? But then the uh, sheer activity inside of her womb uh, made her even, in her lack of experience, realize something extraordinary is going on uh, in, inside of her. And so she took her concern uh, to the Lord in prayer. And the reason for the struggle uh, within her was that she was carrying twins. 
And the word that is used there, the English word struggle in the original language uh, gives, uh, of the Hebrew gives us an idea of, of what she was experiencing. The word struggle means to struggle. It means to break, yes, it's always nice when there's that kind of clarity, but it means to break, and then it means to dash uh, one another. And so it is speaking of this violent internal commotion that is going on inside of her in this pregnancy. So considerably more than, ooh, I think I just felt the baby move. (laughs) She probably would have longed for uh, something as subtle as that going on in this uh, pregnancy. Now, these two were mixing it up uh, inside of her. God's answer to Rebecca is there in verse 23. She's carrying twins, and each of the twins uh, would uh, ultimately become the heads of two, uh, not only two nations, but two rival nations, the nation of Israel and then the a nation and kingdom of Edom. And the two children had already begun the struggle that would go on between them through their entire life. They'd already begun it even in, in the womb. Uh, very significant for us this morning is to realize, as, as the Lord spoke to Rebecca, that the older, the firstborn, uh, is going to serve the younger. In other words, the younger child, the second-born child of these twins is going to uh, ultimately triumph and become the greater of the two. The younger would be the one who would carry on uh, the messianic line from Abraham and Isaac. And, of course, that was the total opposite of tradition in the ancient world. Always the firstborn was afforded that uh, that kind of, of a position. The birth of the two boys are given to us there in uh, t- verses 24 to 26. When she gave birth, sure enough, there were two of them. Remember, no sonograms in those days and all of those things. Uh, and the firstborn came out and uh, in verse 25, and he came out all red. Something about seeing a child born coming out and uh, covered in white, and there they are, red. And uh, one of the things that the uh, Jewish, the Hebrew people did is that very often they would name a child after some characteristic they saw immediately related to the birth. Uh, So you better come out in some kind of good shape or you're going to end up with a lousy name. And, uh, but here he comes out, he's all red in, in color, and, uh, but he, he was also like a hairy garment all over, like he's wearing a cardigan sweater. He really must have been uh, quite a sight. And so they named him Esau, which literally means hairy. And so he was named after that uh, because the word hobbit hadn't been uh, invented yet. That was several centuries away. So it wasn't in circulation at that time. The second born in verse 26, after being born, uh, he takes, while they're lying side by side there, he grabs a hold. He's continuing the fight of the womb. Uh, He grabs a hold of uh, Esau's heel and uh, wants to continue that fight that's been going on for nine months. And as a result, he was named Jacob, which means heel catcher. I mean, they really did name you after uh, something immediate uh, that impacted them related to your birth. And we're told in verse 26 that Isaac was 60 years old when they were uh, born. And all of that then just sets the stage for this really great pivotal event 
that uh, occurred later in the lives of Jacob and Esau as young adults uh, here in our text. What's clear uh, here in in verses uh, 27 to 34, which is our main focus here this morning, uh, is that Jacob prized the birthright, uh, and he was determined uh, to obtain it. Uh, What is equally clear is that his brother Esau despised uh, the birthright, selling it for uh, a bowl of red, literally in the Hebrew, a bowl bowl of uh, vegetarian uh, lentil soup. So uh, here, whatever is, is happening here, clearly at the center of what is happening is this birthright. And as a result of it, it's important to understand what is this birthright that meant so much to uh, Jacob and was so despised by uh, Esau. The birthright in that ancient culture, culture and, uh, and then later a part of it would be codified into the law of Moses. But the birthright uh, was uh, that which was the, the firstborn son, the means by which he was given a special kind of uh, honor and responsibility by virtue of being firstborn. By virtue of being the firstborn, he was given this thing called the birthright. And the birthright, materially speaking, uh, as a result of receiving the birthright, he was given double the inheritance of any other son uh, of, of the father. So materially speaking, it was very advantageous to be the firstborn and possess the, the birthright. Second, in terms of the birthright, uh, looking at it in terms of power, in terms of position, in terms of authority, uh, upon the death of uh, his parents, he then became the patriarch. He became uh, the uh, head of the family. But there was another dynamic beyond simple authority and uh, material gain. There was a spiritual dynamic that was uh, a part of of possessing the birthright. And and here was uh, not only the privilege of the birthright, but here comes the responsibility of being the firstborn and receiving uh, the birthright. To receive the birthright meant that you took responsibility now for the spiritual health and direction uh, of the family. Uh, It fell upon you to keep the family spiritually uh, well-directed and directed in in a healthy uh, way. And those were the three things that characterized the birthright. Uh, let's briefly revisit the account there in verses 27 to to 34, uh, knowing this. So we're told that Esau, when he grew up, he grew into kind of an outdoorsman, and uh, not kind of, he was, I mean, he was an outdoorsman on, uh, he wasn't on steroids, but he was on steroids. 
I mean, he was really that kind of a guy. We're told that he was a skilled hunter. He was a man of the field, and uh, nothing wrong with that uh, so far. We're told that Jacob, in verse 27, was a mild man, and that he dwelt uh, in tents. It is amazing how different our children can be, uh, isn't it? You wonder, what gene pool did they come from? I mean, how different they can be. And here you have Jacob, and Jacob uh, preferred uh, civilization, uh, so to speak. And so what appealed to him was staying close to the family, staying close to the family compound or settlement, uh, tending what was a a very considerable uh, amount of of flocks and herds that the the family uh, possessed, and as opposed to going out into the wild uh, to hunt. Very important uh, that you do not misunderstand that word mild that is used uh, to describe uh, Jacob in the New King James. And it literally means, in the Hebrew, uh, complete. It means sound. It means level-headed. It means solid. It means well-behaved, peaceful, quiet, upright. And you, you make a, uh, you'll make a very great mistake if you follow how many, many preachers and Bible teachers represent uh, Jacob by virtue of this world, word uh, mild. And they uh, look at that and they contend that he's the polar opposite of this great outdoorsman Esau, his twin brother, and uh, that he was just a mama's boy, uh, just a sissy. And, uh, and that he would sit in his tent and he would uh, either spend his days uh, knitting or playing with dolls. Uh, all day. I mean, I've seen, I've heard some preachers. J. Vernon McGee is really, really rough on uh, on Jacob. It's important to understand Jacob is never condemned uh, in the passage, and he is never portrayed that way in the rest of the revelation concerning him uh, in in the scriptures. If you know anything about what the Bible says about Jacob you know this was one very tough, very strong, very determined, very sharp guy. And uh, I wouldn't want to negotiate a contract with him. And uh, I wouldn't want to enter into a wrestling match with him. It might go on all night. And uh, uh, so this was no sissy uh, by any, any uh, stretch of the imagination. We're told uh, in verse 28 that uh, each of the parents had a favorite among the sons. And uh, Isaac, he loved Esau. And because uh, the fact that he would go out, he would hunt and then come back with his venison and come back and uh, make these meals. And so he loved him because he ate uh, of his game. And Rebecca, she loved uh, Jacob. And of course, it is a, a, a mistake to... Uh, the, parents may have their favorites. They may have a child that is a real handful and the other one is a little easier uh, to handle, and a lot of things can go through a parent's mind, uh, but there is no indication here in terms of either Isaac or Rebecca giving any uh, overt indication that uh, they, they love the one more than the other, but it's really kind of hard 
for, uh, in, in what's being described here for a kid not to get the drift of uh, which one of them was the favorite of which parent. And of course, that's always a, a mistake. And then in verse 29 comes the, the great telling event. And Jacob, uh, he cooked a stew, and, uh, and he, uh, the Hebrew there reveals it to be a bean stew, uh, uh, and the bean is, is lentil, uh, and uh, so it is this red stew, this pottage that's been made, vegetarian uh, red stew, very high in protein and very low in fiber, and uh, you'll see even later in the, in the Old Testament that when uh, the, the armies of Israel would go to war or they were in need of real sustenance uh, to, to, for a march or something like that, that bread and lentil soup really could carry you. And this is what it was that Jacob was, was making. Uh, very substantial and satisfying a hunger. Esau comes in from the field and, and uh, he is weary from hunger. So uh, this is an encouragement to all of you hunters and fishers. Even a skillful hunter is unsuccessful uh, sometimes. And uh, so he goes out and though he is this uh, great skilled hunter, uh, he uh, has uh, not been able uh, to bag anything, and he returns back to the family settlement, and now he's weak with hunger. And so he requested that Jacob would give him some of his red stew. And literally, as it's there in verse 30, he uh, says, uh, let me swallow it, you know, and the idea is, give it to me, I'm so hungry, I want to just wolf it down. And we'll see in just a moment that that's exactly uh, what he does, uh, living up to his reputation as an outdoorsman uh, uh, all the way uh, to this. Well, Jacob, he, he hears all of this and, and the, the desire for this from his brother, and this looks like a good opportunity to negotiate. So in verse 31, he negotiated that he would give some stew to Esau in exchange for Esau's birthright as the firstborn. Uh, and it may be that it just came to his mind immediately at that moment. He's just not thinking of anything. He's just making stew. And here comes this opportunity to get what he's longed for all of his life. Or it may uh, very well be that Esau made a habit of coming, uh, you know, staying too far out uh, for too long on a hunt and coming back continually in this famished kind of condition. And, and, uh, uh, and this time, uh, Jacob decided to take advantage of it, to be cooking something uh, at the time that he did come into the camp. Now, when Jacob does this thing to try and, and gain the birthright, and he does gain the birthright, uh, there was really no need for him to do this. Uh, God had already promised Rebekah, and uh, a promise that it, I, I would assume the boys were aware of at this particular point, uh, but even if they weren't, there's no necessity to do it. But it, there was, he didn't have to re, re, uh, uh, resort to this carnal manipulation to attain the birthright. God had already promised that the older was going to serve the younger and that Esau would end up serving him. And, and by virtue of that, he would in some way gain the birthright. If he just sat 
still and, and trusted in God, this would have come to him uh, in, in time. And, and what Jacob does here is, is a flaw for sure. And uh, God is going to deal with his, uh, his personality as one uh, of, of being uh, pretty manipulative as a guy. Uh, he knew how to, in any kind of negotiation or any kind of a transaction, to not only just come up uh, on, out on top, but to come out way on top. And uh, so he had this natural bent for this kind of thing and, uh, and uh, using people in this way, taking advantage of them uh, in this way. But God has a cure for it. Because in his fairly immediate future, he is going to run into his uncle Laban, who has a PhD in uh, manipulation and, uh, and uh, con mannery, or whatever the word would be for that. Uh, and, and that's going to uh, use, be used by the Lord to rid this of, uh, of, uh, of Jacob's life. Now, having said that, it is very important to notice that beyond the uh, pressure, uh, that the physical circumstances that were there upon Jacob and upon uh, Esau, that G Jacob completely left Esau uh, free to make his own uh, decision here. And, uh, and the charge that Esau is going to later make against Jacob in, in chapter 27, verse 36, of Jacob stealing the birthright, uh, that's revisionist history in Esau's retelling of the event and, uh, and an attempt at blame-shifting. Blame uh, Esau, in verse 32, he considered himself to be so hungry that uh, he thought if he had to wait any, any longer at all for food that, that uh, he, he might die. And then what good would the birthright be to him if he was dead? And so I'm going to lose the birthright to you anyway in a moment. I'm just about to die. Um, uh, those of you who know the people that uh, die are dying of malnutrition or, or starvation. They're not carrying on conversations like this. Uh, and they're not walking into the tent negotiating. He's a long way away from... Uh, 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 from death here. But he looks at it and says, well, I'm going to die, I'm going to lose it anyway, and so what good is it to me? I'm a dead man in no time. And, but of course, Esau was in no danger of dying any more than uh, uh, we are or our children are when they come in uh, the house after school and say, I'm starving. They are not starving. Uh, they, uh, they had lunch and then they had a two o'clock snack and a three o'clock snack and a four o'clock snack, uh, just like the hobbits, actually, uh, to reference them again. Uh, second breakfast and third breakfast is, is, is in the, uh, uh, the movie there. And so uh, they, he's not in that danger at all. In, in the face of, of Jacob's proposal, all uh, he had to say was, no, I would rather die then lose this birthright. And uh, this is not something that will ever be negotiable uh, between you and I, and he could have absolutely uh, slammed uh, the door related to that. But instead, uh, you notice there in verse 32 that he called it this birthright. 
I mean, he speaks of it even with, uh, with con- contempt as he describes it uh, there. Now, you have to stop for a moment and uh, think about this uh, a little more deeply uh, on, on a particular issue. Uh, Esau didn't declare uh, of, uh, uh, in, in speaking of this birthright. I mean, he didn't declare that of just any birthright. I mean, that would have been appalling enough in the ancient world. But he declared this of the birthright of Abraham and Isaac. And now your jaw drops related to how significant and how serious uh, what it is that's happening here in, in this situation. The potential to be a part of God fulfilling his amazing covenant that he had made to Abraham and promised to fulfill through Isaac and, and his descendants and, and uh, to bring a great nation into existence through them, the Jewish people, to deliver the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, to them as a people, and then the promise to bless all of the families of the entire earth through their bloodline, through the provision of a Messiah, the provision of a Savior to the world, Jesus Christ Himself. This is the bloodline that Esau sniffs at in, in this, uh, this chapter. And uh, what he did here is, is so stunning, you can't even put it into words. And so we're told that Esau sold his birthright. Uh, he sold that birthright, and he sold it not from Manhattan, not for all of South America, uh, not for the entire uh, island of Australia, not for all of the money in the world. He sold it for a bowl of stew. He sold it for a bowl of red. (laughs) And to be careful to notice that word sold at the end of verse 33. And he esteemed that birthright to be of no more value than a bowl of red stew. Selling, that's a transaction. That's an even for even thing. In the mind of whoever's doing the transaction. Seems like a fair thing uh, to do. And of course, it's arguably the worst transaction recorded uh, in the Bible or in human history. Barring Adam and Eve's uh, selling paradise for a piece of fruit. Uh, or uh, Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver in the New Testament. In, in verse 33, do you know what the great uh, famous evangelist uh, D.L. Moody wrote in the margin of his Bible next to verse 33? Well, of course you don't. Uh, but I've got to set the stage for it a little bit. And, uh, but here's what he wrote in his Bible. He said... No food except the forbidden fruit was as dearly bought as this broth. No food was as, uh, no food except the forbidden fruit was as dearly bought 
as this broth. And it's so true. And then we're told in verse 34 uh, with, I think, words that are meant to shock us, but also to instruct us uh, in, in all of this, that when Jacob uh, placed the bowl in Esau's hand, you notice that there in verse 34 how fast it happens. I mean, he ate, drank, arose, and went his way. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, he really did wolf it down. And then you can almost see him wipe his mouth with his sleeve and then head right out of, uh, of the tent. And at that moment, he's just absolutely indifferent in terms of what he'd done. I mean, no, no regret, no hesitation, uh, no pangs of guilt, nothing that, that he's experienced at all. And then the, the whole passage closes with the Holy Spirit's commentary on uh, everything that's come immediately before it in verse 34 and, and uh, where the Holy Spirit declares, thus Esau despised his birthright. And the word despised, again in the Hebrew language, it means, uh, it carries the idea of utter contempt uh, to slight or to take little account of. And what the passage reveals to us about Jacob for our instruction is that supremely it reveals to us that for all of Jacob's considerable flaws uh, that God is going to work on in his life, he did prize the birthright. He prized an opportunity to be a part of that godly lineage and to be a part of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, uh, to the world. And in all of this, again, for all of his flaws, he understood what's truly valuable in life, and that is to be involved somehow in what God is doing in human history, uh, to be involved in his work, and the, the only work that it, in this world that's eternal. The only work that is one day going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And Jesus spoke of the importance of, of this attitude in, in us as his disciples. John chapter 6, verse 27, he said, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." It's important to notice that Jacob is not condemned at all in this passage. And he is not concern, condemned concerning this event in the remainder of, of the Bible. Only Esau is condemned uh, in, in this, this passage. What this passage uh, reveals to us about Esau for our instruction is that Number one, he despised the birthright. I mean, we're plainly told that. But then to stop and ask ourselves, why did he uh, uh, despise the birthright? Uh, what was behind this, this stunningly bad decision that Esau made? 
Well, clearly, he was a man who was utterly dominated by his flesh. He's a man who lived for the gratifying of his flesh, the feeding of his fleshly uh, appetite. And, uh, and that was the most important thing in life, whether that uh, that appetite of the flesh is emotional or whether it's physical or whatever it might be. And it's basically to live on the, on the level of an animal. Uh, if it feels good, uh, do it. There's no thought processes. There's no uh, logic that's involved. There's no uh, thinking the consequences all of the way through. My body wants it and I'm going to give my body uh, what it wants. And here he is, so dominated by his flesh and his body appetites that there, there isn't the slightest concern in him for spiritual things or for the purpose of, uh, purposes of God in the world. As I uh, heard uh, Bill McDonald uh, put it once, uh, he was all kitchen and no chapel. And uh, that, is, uh, that is Esau uh, in a sentence. Um, he was also a man who didn't possess a spiritual bone in his body. And it wasn't because he was uh, born, uh, born that way. It wasn't because he was raised that way. He was raised in a very godly uh, environment and uh, heritage. A man, imagine being the grandson of Abraham. Imagine being the son of Isaac. I mean, he knew all of uh, these things related to God. He's given this in incredible uh, godly heritage. Both of the boys had been given uh, that. And so he, he is this deeply unspiritual person uh, because he chose to be that way. He, he just refused to develop any kind of spiritual maturity or, or sobriety or discipline within in his life. And he lived his life determined that if anything cost him uh, even an hour's time, if it involved the slightest uh, sacrifice at all or the, the slightest discipline at all in order to uh, grow spiritually as opposed to doing something that's just fun and easy and effortless and carnal, uh, then he just refused to give any consideration at all to the spiritual. It was just simply out of the question for him. And, and no spiritual blessing was worth anything to him. What he failed to understand is that in the Christian life, it isn't the material blessings of being a child of God that are the greatest blessings. It is uh, the birthright that is the blessing. And later in chapter tw 27, when he asks his father after his father Isaac gives the blessing to uh, Jacob, again under some pretty shady circumstances on Jacob's part there, but, but now he cries out to his father and he cries out to the father that the father would bless him, uh, that the blessing had been stolen from him uh, by his brother. And for Esau, all he could think about was the first two things that characterized the birthright. And that was the financial advantages and then the power and the authority within the family. But no interest at all in the spiritual aspect of things. And what he failed to realize 
is that far beyond any blessing that material blessings are in life or that any kind of power or authority that a person might gain in life is the privilege of being an influence for God within a family, within a marriage, in the context of children, in the context of the whole world, in the context of a school, in the context of a neighborhood or an apartment complex. That's what's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. Not any material thing that God gives us, a double of the inheritance or some position of power that we have in life. What good are those things if they aren't then used now in some way to do something for God that is going to last forever? And Jacob, uh, Esau didn't understand that at all. He still, even in chapter 27, all he wants is power, all he wants is money, but he still does not want any spiritual responsibility attached to his life. He's got everything completely upside down. And he's not the last one uh, to have done that in, in life. What a stark contrast uh, Esau is to that famous pastor and theologian John Knox and 10,000s like him in church history who cried out in a real zeal uh, for God and for his work. He said, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Think about the gulf between a man like that or a woman like that and then Esau. And what a John Knox understands about life and what an Esau chose to remain completely ignorant about. And if you have never ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you need to buy a copy of that or download it onto your Kindle and read that book about the thousands and the thousands of people like John Knox that are part of our heritage. And here is Esau, he was a man who lived completely uh, as if this life is all there is. Not a serious thought about heaven, no preparing for the life that follows, no making decisions in the context uh, of eternity, no thought at all to one day standing before God and giving an account for his decision-making or the life that, uh, that he was living. No fear of God at all in, in Esau's life. Now the safe thing for us to do here this morning in the handling of this uh, scripture. And if I was a coward as a pastor, I would do it. And that would be to uh, treat this as merely a character study concerning Esau. And just to look at it and uh, safely as Christians, uh, separated from the passage by thousands of years and thousands of miles and say, now you know a little bit uh, about Esau, and, uh, which we would be tempted to do, except for the fact that in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit brings up the subject of Esau again, not in speaking to pagans or to the world, but in speaking to Christians. Again, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse uh, uh, 16, 
lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. In other words, the opportunity to repent was too late. And here you have the Holy Spirit's second commentary on Esau, and that is that he was a profane person who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. And above everything else about Esau, the Holy Spirit condemns him as profane. So what in the world does it mean to be profane? To be profane doesn't mean that he was given to profanity or he had a swearing problem, or that he uh, cursed frequently, as, as the, uh, it might be used within our, our culture predominantly. In the Bible, the word profane uh, generally means, as it means here, it means common. It, it, it is used in the sense of, uh, of something that is unholy or undevoted uh, to God. This word profane was a word that was used to describe everything in the world that was on the other side of the threshold, the doorway that led out of the Jewish temple and then into uh, the world. Everything that lies beyond the sanctifying influence of God, the temple, and uh, is what he is, describes as being profane, as being uh, common. And it is important to understand for something to be profane in the eyes of God does not mean that it is uh, superlatively uh, wicked. It is to make something that ought to be holy like everything else in the world. It is to make something that ought to be holy, like everything else in the world. And the great sin of Esau, and the sin that we are susceptible to even as Christians, uh, is not so often that we become some notorious sinner in life, but that we become like everything else in the world concerned only with material prosperity, no concern for God's plan or His purposes for our life or His plan or His purposes at work uh, in the world and without uh, any kind of a consuming passion uh, to be a spiritual influence for God uh, in our families or in the world uh, around us. And somehow as Christians, we possess... Uh, something comparable to Esau's birthright. Or else the writer of the book of Hebrews would not have used him and his birthright as a means of instructing us as Christians. And as Christians, it's important for us to realize that each of us possesses a birthright as well. And the birthright that we possess is a far greater birthright than anything that Esau could have dreamed of. And Paul spoke of it in his letter to the Romans. 
in chapter 8, verse 16, and he said, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. And heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The Apostle John speaks of it in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And then he goes on to speak of the birthright concerning that. And he declares, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And our birthright as Christians is the spiritual heritage that is ours in Christ. And it includes everything that we are and everything that we have in Christ by virtue of being born again into God's uh, family. In other words, and, and not only the blessings of it, but all of the responsibility of it uh, as well. In other words... For example, uh, the privilege of attending church together with other Christians. The Bible calls it the assembling together uh, of the saints to worship God and to receive from God, to bless Him and, and it, with our praise and with our worship and, and, uh, and to offer that up, up to Him and then also to come together in order to serve one another is a part of the body uh, of Christ. That is a part of our, our birthright. But you think about how many Christians there are who no longer attend church. Think about the sheer number that you are aware of. No longer attend church. Uh, and, and this privilege, this birthright, is being sold every week for some bowl of stew some sporting event on television, or television in general, or going to the movies, or some hobby, or some sport, or just sitting at home uh, doing nothing and reading uh, the newspapers. And do you think, uh, uh, or how many uh, Christians will only attend church if there's no sacrifice involved, no better offer? Uh, only if it doesn't demand something of me. It must be 100% convenient. And all of it's Esau. All of it's Esau. And it ultimately leads to deep regret. And how about the privilege of Christian service? Do you think about how many Christians refuse to be involved in Christian service because it involves uh, sacrifice on some level? Oh, you might get me to church uh, two times out of the week, but I have no intention of, of serving God uh, in, in any way. Or, and and the refusal to engage in Christian service because of the sacrifice that is, is involved uh, or because some bowl of stew means more uh, to them in life. And it's Esau. And it will lead to, uh, ultimately, to regret as well. And then how about the privilege of prayer? And where there is no prayer in a Christian's life, why is that? It's because prayer has lost out to some bowl of pottage somewhere else uh, in our lives. 
Or what about the privilege of reading and studying uh, the Bible? Or what about the privilege of knowing the gospel and then sharing it with others as we're commanded to do? What about being filled with the Holy Spirit? What about being led by the Holy Spirit in life? What about being raised in a godly heritage, to be raised by godly parents in a godly church and then to throw all of it away for some comparative bowl of red as so many uh, people do and all of it's Esau. And I want to be careful to make clear here that I'm not saying that for a Christian to falter in one or two uh, of these areas periodically in, in our lives, that that puts us in the category of an Esau, that would be excessive. That wouldn't be fair. That would be to take the passage beyond what I feel it can be taken to. And, but if the neglect of all of these things generally characterizes my life as a Christian, then I am backslidden from Christ and definitely in the category of an Esau. Because whatever I have backslidden from Christ for, whatever I have forfeited the fullness of my Christian birthright for, Whatever sex, drugs, rock and roll, money, power, pleasure, whatever it might be, from the vantage point of heaven, it is no more than a bowl of stew. And it is as dumb a bargain or a decision as can be made in life. And unfortunately, there are gazillions of backslidden Christians in the world today. And it's Esau. And it's important that we are not one of them. And it is important that if we are not one of them today, that we never become one of them. That we never become uh, Esau. There used to be a saying way back when, and I don't know if people still are saying it, but I think everyone has a right to be exposed to it once in our Christian experience. But there was the question that would be posed, and it went like this. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were arrested for being a Christian, uh, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And for Esau, the answer would have been no. There was no evidence uh, at all related to him. But it's a good question for each of us to ask ourselves this morning and uh, to let it search us. And then, and, and, and some of us, and hopefully the vast majority of us would look at it and say, I'd be convicted in, in three seconds. Uh, there, if it ever became a, a, a crime to be a Christian, I'm doomed. But if a person can look at that question and the answer would honestly be no, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict me, then the importance of repenting. 
and to either come to originally a true understanding of what Christianity is, and that is that He is not merely my Savior, but He is to be our Savior and our Lord as, as well. Or if I've known that and fallen away from that, to return to a Christian life that is not profane, but one that prizes and appreciates everything, that Jesus lived and died and was buried and rose again to provide to us. Esau would live to deeply regret this chapter in his life, and so will everyone who chooses his path. And the beautiful thing, there is no way to do a perky message on Esau, but it's an important one. And to make sure that if we are in a category of Esau today, that we do not go to our cars and continue um, in this existence that is so profane and, and so stunningly and shockingly uh, uh, appalling from the vantage point of heaven and, and, and should be in the heart of anyone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and to correct that this morning. And, and so after our service, there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front uh, that would love to pray with you related to this. Or if you just would like to find a place to sit in the sanctuary before you leave. Or it's a beautiful day, cold, a little cold, breezy. But it's a wonderful day to take a walk, the canals or something, and get all of this situated with the Lord. The idea isn't to merely bring uh, an Esau into conviction in the sermon today, but that that conviction would then lead to repentance and a turning to God in a full way. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, Jesus taught his disciples and he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And, it, and, and, and here you have the single worst decision that a person can make is to ever lose my soul for even if the world offered me the entire world, it would be nothing but a bowl of pottage in the light of what is found in this salvation, much less what the small trinkets so often that keep us enamored and keep us away from the Lord. But if you'd like to come to know the Lord today and make that great decision to follow Him, these same men and women would be up in, will be up in front to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we pray and ask that you would use our time in your word this morning and our study of this passage to forever inoculate us from ever choosing the way of Esau. And then, Lord, we pray that 
for any of us that would be in the place of an Esau this morning, wherever this is being heard, that you would use it, Lord, to draw them either to you or to draw them back to you. And thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you convict not to push us away, but in order to draw us close to you. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit where it is needed as well. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.